Hey, it's Nick. Out of trouble. Pattern interrupting. Whatever, you know. Uh, so I know what you're thinking. God damn, this episode is long. <laughs> I blame Sam asking these questions that I gotta answer and uh, just sets my obsessive energy off. No, but I did a crazy amount of research for this one and um, you're gonna learn a lot. If you're interested, I'm going to leave a massive unorganized pile of sources in the show notes. Um, okay, so we're going to demystify how the news works, talk about how news gets funded, speak with a professor, play a bunch of sound bites. I'm going to challenge your assumptions, whether you're a liberal or a conservative. Are you ready? Oh, by the way, if you're just tuning in, this is an extension on a three-part series. Um, so you might want to go back and listen to the last three episodes first. They're a lot shorter than this one. Rate, review me, check out my social media. I'm at Out of Trouble Nick, N-I-K. If you enjoy this series, if you find it informative, please share it with a friend. Uh, check out my website. I got links in the episode description. All right, let's jump right into it. Enjoy. Okay, so we ended last episode, and I had just misinformed y'all by omitting what I didn't know about how journalism gets funded, right? And I, I wanted to dig into that after I'd made the original version of that third episode. And so I did some Googling, and that led me to this book, All the News That's Fit to Sell, by James T. Hamilton. Okay, I just picked up this book and I'm reading the first chapter and I just get called out so hard right in the first chapter. Let's see. It's not even the first chapter, it's the introduction. The end of the introduction. He says, too often problems with reporting are couched in personal, entertaining stories about media titans or network anchors. You remember in the last episode, that's exactly what I did is I couched the problem of media polarization in entertaining stories about news anchors. Feminism was established so as to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream. Mad scientists in Russia, Ukraine are manufacturing the coronavirus on purpose so they could hurt innocent children and kill grandma and grandpa. That's Hillary. <laughs> Legendary. It's like I was getting caught in this smokescreen. And I love that the author of this book called me out and the quote goes on to say, I believe the more fundamental truth is that our problems lie not in our media stars, but in ourselves. Those making efforts to improve media markets need to recognize that news emerges not from individuals seeking to improve the functioning of democracy, but from readers seeking diversion reporters forging careers, and owners searching for profits. After reading just this introductory chapter, I already know I'm gonna have to toss out the entire third episode that I made. And I didn't entirely toss it out. I mean, you heard a version of it last week, and it's not like I was completely wrong in my conclusions or anything. It's just that what I've learned since, mostly from this book, has completely changed my understanding of how our news media works, uh, and yes, how it became so politically polarized. 
By the way, this is actually the third remake of this episode. Okay, so you heard the first version actually two weeks ago, and then I made another version of this episode that was two hours long that I had to toss out. That's why I didn't post last week. Yeah, no lie. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the freaking frogs gay. Do you understand that? Part of redoing the episode the first time, I had to get fresh tape, right? So I called up James T. Hamilton, director of the journalism program at Stanford and chair of the Department of Communication, and the author of this book, All the News That's Fit to Sell. Hello. Hi, it's Jay. How are you? Hi, Jay. Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, you prefer Jay or Professor Hamilton? Uh, Jay. Jay's book has helped me see Fox News' creation as logical, not so much diabolical. Uh, the result of advances in technology and um, certain market forces, not just the actions of nefarious individuals and anchors. The solutions to the problems in our news media, as Jay lays them out, likewise logical, likewise to do with technology and market forces. Here's me talking to him about it. So basically what you're saying is like the same tools that have made social media quite powerful and the technological tools that have made um, perhaps the government more powerful online in the online space. Journalists should be using the same power of technology. Yes, but that's costly. That's where we'll end this series. Back with Professor Jay. But for now, say um, say bye, Jay. Bye, Jay. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, so what you've heard already is the only part of that two-hour episode that I salvaged, along with this next part which was the most important thing that I learned from my dive in the last 200 years of journalism history. Every action has its equal opposite reaction. Thanks to Hamilton, our cabinet's fractured into factions. Did you know our press used to be almost entirely partisan? We smack each other in the press and we don't print retractions. It surprised me. It was one of the many things I learned from Professor Jay's book. You're kidding. Nope. They mention it in the famous musical, Hamilton. Sir, Jefferson will pay for this behavior. Talk less. I'll use the press, I'll write under a pseudonym. You'll see what I can do to him. Hamilton is set around the turn of the 18th century, and they mention the partisan press and how they're going to use it to slander their opponents because most newspapers back then were directly supported by one or the other political party. So... Of course, they skewed their stories accordingly, and they frequently and willingly served as attack dogs for their political patrons. Have you read this? Alexander Hamilton had a torrid affair, and he wrote it down right there. Have you read this? That was normal for the press back then. It was expected. With the printing technology that was available at the time, they didn't have huge audiences. They couldn't make much money from advertising, so they relied on the subscription costs to their papers, the price of the newspaper itself, which also wasn't enough. So they actually relied on the funding and political favors like tax breaks from their partisan patrons. And that's the way the news worked for most of the 1800s. By 1870, Still, only 13% of newspapers called themselves independent or nonpartisan. The rest were openly supported by either the Democratic or Republican Party. 
Okay, so now it's 1870, 1880, 1890. Something called the cylinder press is invented, which allows more papers to be printed faster and reach larger audiences. That makes these newspapers more appealing to advertisers who also want to reach those large audiences. So now, because of those better printing presses, advertisement money becomes a more important source of funding for newspapers than patronage from political parties. Now, for a paper to be successful, you want to have the largest audience that you can get in order to make the most money from advertisers, right? And to get the largest audience possible, you have to be nonpartisan. You have to appeal to everyone. Before the cylinder press, it didn't matter because they couldn't print that many papers a day anyway. On top of that, the price of this new cylinder press was much more than those old printing presses. Okay, so the price jumped from like four or five thousand dollars for a printing press, and this is in 1800s money, right? So like a hundred thousand dollars in today's money. It jumped from that to about eighty thousand dollars for a printing press in 1800s money. So you know what's eighty thousand times sixteen? Like a million and a half dollars for a new printing press. And so what that means is that it became much harder for a single editor with a small group of reporters to run a successful publication funded by their local political party, as was the norm before. Those small publications could no longer compete with the growing independent papers and their fancy cylinder presses. As Professor Jay puts it in his book, the increasing costs of establishing a paper effectively raise the cost of running a paper to express an owner's or party's worldview. It has made the newspaper more of an institution, less of a personal organ. More and more, the owner of the big daily is a businessman. The editors are hired men. And now that the provider of the newspaper capital hires the editor instead of the editor hiring the newspaper capital, it's the editor finding funders, the paper is likelier to be run as a moneymaker, pure and simple. Give people what they want, not what you want. And at the time, what people wanted was objective news. This blew my mind when I first read through Professor Jay's book. I always thought that objectivity in journalism arose as this enlightened ideal pushed forward by a growing class of professional journalists. But, but no, the real reason that objectivity in journalism took hold as more than an ideal, as an actual fact, isn't because reporters and editors and owners suddenly all decided to do the right thing and tell the objective, unbiased truth. It's because objectivity became more profitable. By the end of the 1800s, about half of all newspapers call themselves independent, and they start to develop the style of what we now call objective journalism. So now it's 1900 and partisan papers are increasingly finding themselves in the minority. This was a situation that was widely hailed by editors and journalists of the day as a good thing, right? It reduced the influence of small newspaper owners on elections, it brought new consumers into the market since newspapers were cheaper now, and it birthed this ideal of objective news. It became more profitable to be unbiased, nonpartisan, and that regime of objectivity will last in journalism for more than a hundred years. Objectivity becomes the professional norm. 
And it's important to note that while many reporters and editors valued independence in the 1800s, they weren't able to make it an actual fact until it became profitable to be nonpartisan and independent. Okay, so before I keep moving forward, I think it's important that I take a moment right now to um, define exactly what I mean by objectivity and objective news. Objectivity encompasses political neutrality, but actually it includes other aspects of neutrality, fairness, factuality. It was coined as a term by this guy, Walter Lippmann, who um, saw it as a manner of applying the scientific method to journalism. According to Wikipedia, objectivity in journalism aims to help the audience make up their own mind about a story, providing the facts alone, and then letting the audience interpret those on their own. Objective reporting is meant to portray issues and events in a neutral and unbiased manner, regardless of the writer's opinion or personal beliefs. So objectivity back then and now doesn't mean that reporters themselves aren't biased, actually it counts on reporters being biased, or that their finished stories don't contain some opinions or beliefs of others or maybe conclusions of their own based on facts. Objectivity in journalism means using a method to verify information and account for one's own bias. The method is objective, not the journalist. It is up to some debate what exactly qualifies as objective reporting. For example, here's Nicholas Lehman. He's a writer for The New Yorker and professor of journalism at Columbia University. Um, I find his definition of objective reporting to be pretty lenient. Objectivity is any attempt to avoid total subjectivity in the pursuit of information. You share your findings with others and they're allowed to dispute them. And out of a kind of vigorous, uh, juried conversation, the truth tends to emerge, not from just one person's report. So what do we do if we want a less polarized media environment? Uh, well, the answer, as you might have guessed, we already have it. Objective news exists and it's everywhere, depending on how you define objective. And this is where folks get into trouble. The, the, the very widespread critique of objectivity sort of drives me crazy. He's so on point here. I know exactly what he's talking about. And just anecdotally, I get this from people a lot when I bring up this subject. It has this sort of eternal quality and it entails a, a quite unsophisticated understanding of what objectivity means or a way of sort of defining it very tendentiously as an impossibility. I think objectivity is really important as a goal to strive for. And the fact that people can't uh, achieve it doesn't mean it should be thrown out as a goal. It's like saying, you know, so many marriages end in divorce, we really should abolish marriage. Objectivity is a value, an ideal, right? We talked about this in the last episode. So news that tries to be objective is objective. News that tries is as objective as news has ever been. And it's true that not all journalists try as hard, especially with political bias. But in general, I do see most publications subscribing to some definition of objectivity and traditional journalistic ideals. 
That includes more politically biased ones like Breitbart, The Daily Wire, Common Dreams, The Intercept. Even if they're not politically objective, they are still staffed by professional reporters. I've read articles from all those sources that I found informative, even if the publication as a whole has a political slant. All of these publications about pages on their website claim that they're guided by some variation of classic journalistic ideals like maintaining independence, seeking out the truth, holding power to account, informing the public. And that's important, should not be dismissed. Even Fox News, not the commentators that run during primetime, but their actual news segments during the day, are much less opinionated and more fair and balanced, as their old motto used to claim. Other publications, they openly state that they're a conservative or progressive publication and don't talk about classic journalistic ideals, and that's also important to note. If I see that on an about page, that tells me a lot about how much they value things like avoiding bias and objectivity at that publication. But either way, whether they brand themselves as objective or not, they're subject to many of the same flaws of bias. All publications are guilty of bias at times, and not just political bias, but bias by omission, confirmation bias, selection bias, sensationalism and clickbait. There are many different kinds of bias. So you can't dismiss something out of hand just because it comes from a particular source or you disagree with it. The measure of any publication is how hard they try to account for their bias, either by avoiding it or being transparent about it or both. So we're trying to answer Finally, in this episode. Why can't we handle coronavirus? What is it about the media that is causing people to be so polarized about it? How come some people believe it's a terrible issue and they're hiding in their homes? How come other people are refusing to wear masks and thinking it's an entire joke? What's going on? I gave the first part of my answer already in the second episode of this mini-series. Um, a lack of trust in the media. And then in the last episode, I explained how my original attempt to finish answering this question was a bit of a fluke. I laid too much blame on personas from Fox News, and it was frankly biased. I was omitting what I didn't know and not being politically objective enough. So this time I am going to address all sides. But first, I want to start with Roger Ailes, the founding news director at Fox News. Somebody started on me about... Fox News being conservative. And I said, are you comfortable with CNN and MSNBC? And he said, absolutely. And I said, what about NBC, ABC, and CBS? He said, fine. I said, PBS, NPR, no problem. I said, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times. He said, great. I said, so, but this little cable channel called Fox is somehow ruining your life. I said, keep in mind, the last two guys to get every, all of them lined up together were Hitler and Stalin. That did not work out well for people. So if, if, to be honest with you, if all the media tipped to the right, I'd, I'd be the yeah. biggest liberal in New York. Okay, so moving past the obvious that our corporate-controlled news environment is not like the state-owned media under Hitler and Mussolini, Roger Ailes is not wrong about the press being liberal. There was a liberal bias across mainstream TV news channels in the 80s and 90s. That continues to this day. Here's how it happened. Professor Jay is going to come back and, and join us for this. Hello. 
Hi, it's Jay. How are you? Hi, Jay. So if you start thinking about um, the 90s, that was back in a time when more people watched the network evening news. He's telling me about something I read in his book about the importance of this younger demographic of people to the liberal bias, especially women. According to Nielsen ratings, those consumers were more highly valued by advertisers because data reveal they're more likely to make the purchasing decisions within their families. So if you go back and look at the business press around that time, people would say, you know, we need in our stories to try to reach these viewers. And if you look at the surveys of what uh, women in their 30s and 40s were interested in at that time period, relative to other people, they were more interested in issues of families with children, gun control, and poverty. And if I said to you, you know, I'm a candidate who cares about poverty and gun control and issues of families with children, at that time, that would have been associated more with the Democratic Party. And that translated, I found in my book, into more time devoted to those issues. So rather than this liberal bias being the result of reporters themselves being a little bit more liberal, remember that's how I framed the liberal bias in the last episode. And it's true that the vast majority of journalists are not conservative. Um, to hear your telling, it, it actually has more to do with advertisers trying to reach certain consumers who are more liberal, who are more valuable and happen to be more liberal. So they, they influence the content of news to appeal to those consumers with more money who are more liberal. Yeah. So it was not because the programmers were red or blue. It was because they were green. It was what you would be rewarded for in the marketplace. So if the networks are doing that, the, and you are a new entrant, uh, you counter-program. He's talking about Fox News coming onto the scene here in 1996, and he gives this example of if all the networks are showing football, then you show figure skating, you counter-program. Your sort of decision is, what do you do given what other people are doing? So it was rational for somebody like Fox to counter-program. We're stuck with a polarized media environment because of the dynamics of the marketplace. You've got product differentiation. In the 1960s, there were only seven TV channels on average per household, and only three that carried news, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Starting in the 80s, more television channels become available until by 2000, there's more than 100 per household. When there were three channels, you had sort of a convergence on the center. When you had a multiplication of channels, you were always going to get a spread left and right. Now with the internet, the viewing options are seemingly endless, right? And all these different online and television media companies, they're all competing for a chunk of the same pie. They want our eyeballs, which instead of being concentrated on just a few channels like they were in the 60s, now they're spread out over hundreds of channels and thousands of websites. And once you splinter across many different outlets, you know, think of it very practically. Now that I'm watching Netflix, I'm not reading the newspaper. So to this question about our polarized media, 
having a political bias is how some media outlets compete in this fractured media environment. Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing publications will straight up brand themselves with their politics in order to corner their market niche. Some liberal publications do this too, it's just not as common. Other news channels like CNN and CBS tailor their content to appeal to consumers their advertisers see as valuable. And so their content ends up being catered towards liberals. It's one thing though, nobody likes to be told that they're biased. So, you know, MSNBC, they would say lean in. Actually, they said lean forward, but Jay's point is still the same. They wouldn't say, come have your progressive worldview served back to you. And Fox wouldn't say conservatives skewed over here. They would say fair and balanced. So it, it is interesting. It is interesting indeed, Jay. Thank you. But even if Fox News or MSNBC doesn't like to be called biased, the attitude of their commentators like Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Rachel Maddow, make their political leanings abundantly clear. And these are their most popular programs as well. Here's a clip from Sean Hannity. We're gonna bring you a critical warning that the rest of the media mob won't tell you about, and that is mail-in voter fraud. It is real. Madness now consumes pretty much 99% of media in this country. Breathless, hysteria, conspiracy theories, fake news story after fake news story, every minute, every hour, every 24-hour day, every week, every month, as they work in concert with their partners, the Democratic Party. Nothing but a mere extension. And now Rachel Maddow, MSNBC in 2010, tried to rebrand themselves as the liberal Fox, and Rachel Maddow is one of their most popular commentators. Okay, Uh, this week, Donald Trump presumptive Republican presidential nominee, that guy. At this pivotal moment for the Republican Party, I would like to honor their concerns uh, the only way I know how, by expressing them. All right. At at this point, Rachel Maddow gets up out of her desk, goes on a stage. There's a guy playing a drum behind her. Real quotes from real Republicans since Donald Trump was nominated. Never Trump means never, ever, 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 ever under any circumstances. As long as I have breath, never Trump. Get it. This is a good one. Donald Trump is a proto-fascist grotesque, grotesque as a noun, with zero political experience and poor impulse control. Republicans are having a hard time this week. Some of them. All actual quotes from discouraged Republicans. If you know one, be nice. Now it's time for the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. Rachel, before you go, uh, can you send Nick over here with that drum? We could. We could That's Rachel that. Maddow on MSNBC in 2016, trying to be Fox. Their rebranding hasn't worked out quite as well as they had hoped. And I mean, how could it? They're never going to be the liberal Fox because unlike conservatives, liberals tend to prefer getting their news from multiple sources. I'm not just saying that, by the way, that's according to research done by the Pew Research Center. They did some polls in 2020 that show that Democrats trust more than distrust about 75% of news outlets, while conservatives only trust about 25% of news outlets, with 65% of them placing more trust in Fox News than any other source. Fox News has the monopoly on conservatives who watch TV news, hands down. 
And their opinion segments, like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, run at primetime. They're the most popular programming. It's why, in 2014, four years after MSNBC's rebranding, I might note, Fox News celebrated its 145th consecutive month of being the number one cable news channel. Between CBS, NBC, ABC, and CNN, you're just never going to capture the liberal TV-watching audience in the same way that the conservative audience can be captured. Fox's marketing strategy, appealing directly to people's politics, will never be as profitable for the so-called liberal media. If, if you look at other networks and say, well, don't you have too many conservatives on? I say, yes, compared to none on the other channels, we look very much like that. But we have as many liberals as we have conservatives on the Fox News channel. What I recognized was the American people didn't want to be told what to think about the information they were receiving. So we came up with, we report, you decide, fair and balanced. Okay, so this is where reporters struggle because I, I want to give equal weight to both sides. We've never told anybody what not to say. We just want a dialogue. And yet it would be inaccurate for me to say that right-wing media is biased in the same way that so-called liberal media is. I talked about this a bit in the last episode. Fox and right-wing media, they need their audience to believe that the rest of the media is biased to the left in a way which the so-called liberal media does not. Discrediting the rest of the media with these sort of undiscriminating blanket statements. The mainstream media mob, and they are a mob, and they're allies in the Democratic Party. Is a marketing strategy. It's not the nefarious actions of diehard ideologues. It's how they keep their viewers loyal and their audience large. That said, it's not like other media outlets aren't biased, as I've explained, right? you got product differentiation. But it's different. So outlets that get most of their revenues from advertising, and this is especially true of TV news outlets, they cater to the interests of those advertisers and it does affect the content that they provide. Also, while CNN, for example, doesn't spend its time discrediting the media as a whole, they do spend a lot of their time discrediting Fox. Conspiracy theories, gaslighting. By the way, there was no spying, of course. Facts first, none of that is true. That was a CNN anchor talking about Fox News' coverage of some Russia-Trump news event. It's not really that important. And now here's a Fox anchor talking about CNN's coverage of the same news event. Everything you just saw turned out to be false, if not outright lying. Because it's absolutely not what happened yesterday, not even close. <laughs> it's mind-numbing, right? I feel like I'm listening to them jerk off, honestly. They're both just pandering to the politics of their audiences with this totally inane finger-pointing. Um, that was an opinion. <laughs> the point is, in a fractured media environment with all these options for how to get our news, when you're competing over increasingly smaller and smaller sections of audience, polarization, being politically biased to the left or to the right, is an effective marketing strategy. As long as Fox News can corner the conservative market and CNN can keep capturing the more valuable consumers for their advertisers, there's no financial incentive for them to uh, report the news objectively. 
even if it's something the journalists who work for them value. Which doesn't mean that none of their news is objective, and it's not like their corporate executives are coming into the newsroom necessarily and being like, you need to play more stories that appeal to liberals. But it's true, and this is what Jay sees in his book when he examines the data on mainstream television news, that the set of stories that do well, that get high ratings and the right viewers, and therefore the set of reporters and editors who survive, are determined by these economic factors, by what audiences and advertisers want. How can a patriotic right give Trump respect at all when he's just the last piece of a Russian nesting doll? Rachel, I'm tired of your insanity. Trump is This is an animated rap battle between cable news commentators. This upcoming election. I've got time. Assemble your best crew, because I've got mine. Trump is going down. I have a list full of guests, comedians, yeah. news guys, political reps. Yeah, you tell them, Rachel. Live and direct, no more subliminal threats. Oh. Now we'll show you what we mean by the liberal left. Oh. All right, a little help for my friends? <laughs> Go get them. It's Fox and Friends, up right. like the economy lately. Our All guy right. Trump's looking sturdy where Obama was shaky. The radical left is talking communism. There's no financial incentive for the commentators on Fox to be more objective, just like there's no financial incentive for MSNBC to try to appeal to conservatives. Also, it's cheaper and easier to make news that's just having an opinion on something than doing original reporting. So, in a sense, Rush Limbaugh is correct when he says, Everybody does what they do for the money. If somebody tells you it's not the money, believe me, it's the money. I'm trying to attract the largest audience I can and hold it for as long as I can so that I can charge advertisers confiscatory advertising rates. This is a business. Rush, as I mentioned last episode, was around before Fox News. He was an important influence on them. Um, I know I talked about this already, but I found another clip that absolutely blew my mind. So here's Rush Limbaugh on Sean Hannity's show, and they're talking about Rush's influence on Fox. You did forge a path for all of us. Um, and we all owe you a debt of gratitude. Wow. That's, that's why, really, I wanted to be here. They're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Rush Limbaugh's show. He started in 1988. Are we allowed to mention competing cable networks? Because you, you dominate you, everything. You, They're just a you, bunch of you, you sellers. Well, you By 1991, Rush already had an audience of 7 million Americans. Conservative talk radio is still hugely influential in the conservative media scene. Rush Limbaugh's show now gets 15 and a half million listeners a week. Some estimates put that at 20 million, making his audience comparable if not larger than the number one cable news channel, Fox News, which as of last June was getting 4 million viewers every night. And you know, I've watched countless clips of Fox News commentators saying stuff like what Rush is saying here. I do call it abnormality. We're up against psychological disorder abnormality that is disguised as political issues. And we talk about the meat. It's never been this abusively biased. Well, it's not even biased. Uh, we're so far beyond biased. These people are part of the agenda. I think they, I think they run it. Lambasting liberals, railing against the homeless, beating up on feminists, gays, and those he calls peaceniks and environmental wackos. Unhappily, his critics say he's proof that bigotry sells. Bigotry sells. I love that, and it's so true because bigotry is shocking, right? It's entertaining. Feminism was established 
so as to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream of society. These guys aren't journalists. They're political commentators and entertainers. And I'm not just saying that. I mean, if you look on their wiki or Google bios, they're in the same category, political commentator, as someone like Stephen Colbert. If you don't know who Stephen Colbert is, he hosts a late night political comedy show where he comments on current political events. And his show is the most watched um, late night show of its kind with over 3 million viewers a night. Speaking of delusional, uh, a little bit later on, I'll be talking to the author of the Trump White House tell-all of Fire and Fury. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you have not read it yet, hear the cliff notes. Trump dumb. <laughs> Staff worried. Explain the Trump phenomenon. Maybe we have a, a more unique perspective. Well, the, the, I don't think it's hard to understand the Trump phenomenon at all. Um, he's got an engaging personality. He doesn't offend people. The left thinks he does because they act offended. But Trump just makes people laugh. Mm -hmm. They can't get over the fact that he's likable because they hate him. This book has led a lot of people to question whether Donald Trump is mentally stable enough to be president. Spoiler alert. Colbert is mouthing. He's not. <laughs> but... On Saturday, Trump slapped back the notion that he's incompetent, tweeting, Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. <laughs> okay, so if this is where you get your news and you take these commentators at their word, then you're thinking that Trump doesn't offend people, liberals just pretend to their political benefit, or that our president is crazy, mentally unfit for office. Neither of these things are facts. These are commentators, not journalists. They're trying to entertain you. Journalists, on the other hand, they're not trying to entertain you. Um, I mean, they're trying to write compelling stories, right? But they're trying to inform you. And they're always about more than the money. Even the ultra-famous ones, like Dan Rather, who anchored at CBS News for a quarter century after Walter Cronkite stepped down. Walter Cronkite, he's like the most famous news anchor of all time, and Dan Rather's not far behind him. I mean, he literally took Cronkite's place, right? We're going to hear from Dan a lot now because Mr. Rather exemplifies a quality common across the journalism industry. Journalists see themselves as public servants. For many journalists, reporting objectively is about the principle of the thing. It's what they're trained to do. No journalist can be totally objective, totally unbiased, every day on every story. That the test of a journalist of integrity is over a, a reasonable length of time, how hard does he or she try you know, as a lifetime journalist, I can say I can only speak for myself. You do the best you can, realizing you're going to make your mistakes. Professional journalists are trained to detect and avoid bias. As one article I read pointed out, the concept of objectivity is day one stuff in any journalism program. 
That rang true with my own experience. When I interned for an NPR station a couple of summers ago, it was literally one of the first things they went over with us. It's a basic part of a journalist's job to avoid bias, maybe the most basic. And for many, that includes keeping politics out of their work. Impossible? Maybe, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable to try. My point is that if you define objectivity based on the professional norms of the industry, objective news exists and it's everywhere. Commentators not included. If you come with your education and background, you have a family, you have friends, you have an education, you come in with certain preset ideas of what's going on. What is as important to a journalist as understanding bias is, is being self-aware of knowing what you bring to that story and where you come from, so you can challenge yourself. This is Roger Ailes again, the founding director at Fox News, and I couldn't agree more with what he's saying here. And challenge your assumptions and challenge what you believe and try to prove that you're right. And if you can't, be willing to make an adjustment. Well, would, would you say that bias uh, does not exist at Fox News? I would say anybody who says bias does not exist anywhere in the news is either lying or, or, or stupid. Of course bias exists everywhere, and you have to fight it every single day. What we should be more concerned about than the ethics of our journalists is the influence of conglomeration and corporate ownership. And it's not just in the pressure that newsrooms experience to tailor their content to certain audiences. It's in the quality of the news itself. Dan Rather has an amazing perspective on this because he witnessed the transformation that happened as media companies like NBC, ABC, and CBS were swallowed by these mega corporations. He started his job as anchor at CBS in 1981, worked for 25 years, through this time period in the 80s and 90s when this conglomeration took place. Well, for one thing, in 1950, most of America's news media were owned by 60 different companies. Today, they're owned by just six. Over the last quarter century, I've watched these big media mega companies engage in a relentless cost-cutting race to the bottom, closing news bureaus around the world, whittling down news staffs, replacing journalists, with partisan pundits, and trading local coverage for cookie-cutter programming and celebrity gossip. It's cheap, it's profitable, and it doesn't rock the sponsors' boats or interfere with the big corporations' agendas in Washington. This part makes me sad. Dan Rather and other clips I've seen is pretty optimistic about the future of journalism, but the present of journalism seems pretty grim. We'll get to it more later. All right, let's keep going. It's starving America of real news and debate at a time when issues of the utmost seriousness confront our country and our planet. Fighting in Afghanistan, a world financial crisis, the ongoing conflict in Iraq, and the substantive issues too often neglected in our political campaigns. This is known in the industry as hard news. Hard news is more serious, so like coverage of politics, wars overseas, other pertinent current events. But when we turn on the news, what we hear too often is so-called news about celebrities, consumer products, and titillating crimes of passion. And this is soft news. 
lifestyle news, arts news, entertainment, and commentators fit more into this category as entertainers, um, but they comment on hard news topics, right? So it's understandably confusing at times whether one is getting entertainment or facts. And the issue as Dan Rather sees it, Jay actually quotes him in his book on this, isn't so much that soft news exists, but just that it's all mixed up with hard news. It's not clearly defined. Ladies and gentlemen, substance-free infotainment is hollowing out America's free press, right when we need real journalism and debate the most. In the same way too much junk food can be bad for our health, too much junk media can make our democracy sick. Oh, God. I'm, I'm sorry, Jay. I'm totally telling this story through entertaining anecdotes from famous anchors still, but it kind of works, right? <laughs> I was especially disturbed by Dan Rather's criticism of how mainstream TV news channels collaborate with the government. TV news as a whole still gets 22 million Americans watching it every night, right? So despite our media environment being fractured, that audience of 22 million Americans is still incredibly important and valuable to advertisers and national politicians. I wasn't able to really dig into this because it would require a whole other episode, but coming from someone who benefited from and was so influential on the industry of TV news, what Dan Rather alleges about the relationship between these big media companies and the government is alarming and damning. Do you think the American public is aware of the extent that there's this sort of collusion between the government and the, the networks? No, I, I don't think they are. I think they're beginning to uh, get aware of it. How much the big corporations depend on Washington. They have legislation they won't pass, legislation they won't stop, regulations they won't put forward. And so their big money contributed to political campaigns gives them heavy influence uh, in Washington. They need favors. Of course, what the political powers need is sweetheart coverage. So they work together for their mutual interest. And I don't think people understand it as much as I wish they did, but I do find that awareness is growing. <sighs> it's scary, right? But I don't want you to start thinking conspiratorially, okay? There are still plenty of great news outlets out there with journalists who strive to report objectively, especially if you're not watching TV. Part of reporting objectively is limiting the influence of the owners of a particular publication on the news that that publication creates. And journalists are obviously aware of this. On some about pages, for example, like the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, they specifically mention in their guiding principles that the newspaper's duty is to its readers and the public at large and not the private interests of its owners. Everybody is watching what you do at the Washington Post. Yes. You bought the newspaper out of your personal funds. It's not an Amazon project. Correct. What are you doing? Hmm. Well, I didn't seek to buy the Washington Post. Um, earlier this year, Don, through an intermediary, approached me and said, you know, would you be interested in buying the Washington Post? And I was very surprised. You know, I don't know anything about the news business. I said, you know, I don't understand why I would be good at this. Don thought that, you know, because the newspaper business is being so disrupted by the internet, that somebody who had a lot of internet knowledge and technology knowledge could actually be very helpful and you believe that? to the Post. I eventually came to believe that after having multiple conversations with Don. 
So the Washington Post has definitely not disrupted the industry of journalism. But they've done a really good job disclosing their relationship with Bezos. They've mentioned it thousands of times in their articles. And since Bezos took over, they have hired more staff, switched to a subscription model and become profitable, which is a really big deal, and moved away from a print-focused publication to an online-focused publication. They make stories that are positive about Amazon and stories that are negative. I can't find any evidence that Jeff Bezos has a direct influence on any of the news they make, and editors at The Post claim that he does not. Now, contrast that with Fox News, which says nothing about the influence of its owner and its guiding principles, on its about page, I mean. And um, Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News, does take a vested interest in the content and programming. Political heavyweight and conservative kingmaker. Rupert Murdoch was born in Australia in 1931. When his dad died in 1952, he took control of the family's newspapers. Then he started buying lots more and built a media empire with holdings in cable, film, TV, and satellite. The Fox Network and Fox News, those are his. So are the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. Along with his U.S. holdings, Murdoch owns hundreds of local, national, international news outlets all around the world. He leans conservative, as do most of his holdings. He's hugely influential, and in not just in national politics, but global politics. Although, I get the sense from my research that he leans conservative not so much because he's a diehard ideologue, but rather because, like I said before, being partisan is an effective business strategy. It's how he built his empire. And it's well documented that he uses his relationship with politicians, like President Trump, to benefit his business holdings. So as far as corporate influence, it just depends on the outlet. But I would say that regardless of the outlet, questioning corporate influence is a part of learning about objectivity for any journalist. Despite public opinion, journalists are not empty-headed fools. story and where you come from so you can challenge yourself and challenge your assumptions. That's a journalist's job to question themselves. And it doesn't hurt for us to be aware of these things ourselves as citizens, to question our news ourselves, and to question ourselves ourselves. That has actually been a guiding light for this whole series. Uh, in my mind, I keep going back to this exchange I had with Sam. That's why I, I struggle with doing stories like this now is like, there's something that makes me uncomfortable about like flexing my knowledge. Um, I don't know. I just like, I look around me in the world and I see so many people who are just like fucking idiots. And I'm wondering, am I one of those people, you know? And that's what makes probably. this hard. <laughs> probably, <laughs> right. we, probably we all are like, honestly. Okay. Okay. So how to be less of an idiot when you're consuming news. First of all, Get your news from multiple sources and varied sources. If you lean liberal, read some conservative news sometimes. If you lean conservative, then, you know, read some news sometimes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But either way, if you're looking at a piece of news, ask yourself, is this article reporting or expressing opinion? Is this a commentator or a journalist? Let's say the article includes the perspectives or opinions of others. Does the reporter then make an effort to present differing viewpoints? Do they use 
some method to verify their information, like citing things, you know, like a Gallup poll says 69% of Americans think the sky is blue. And is that source, Gallup in this case, reputable themselves? I like to think I know things, but like, do I though? I like to think I know shit, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's important to also ask yourself, what is the intent behind this piece of news that I'm consuming and the news organization which made it? This can be more difficult um, because no one likes to be accused of being biased, right? Fox wouldn't say conservative skewed over here. MSNBC, they wouldn't say come have your progressive worldview served back to you. But you can check the about page of a publication's website or search for their mission statement or their goals and purpose. Most publications about pages will express some aspect of classic journalistic values, seeking the truth, holding power to account, informing the public, objectivity, but not all, and it's important to know which is which. It's also helpful to know where an outlet gets their funding from, how they make their money. That can definitely shed some light on their intent. That's why I went over how audience demand, corporate ownership, and advertisers influence news, and all that blah 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 about bias as a marketing strategy. If you know an outlet gets most of their money from advertisers, then you know advertisers might have more of an influence on their content. If you notice a lot of political language in their about pages or their articles, then they're probably using politics to brand themselves, to market themselves effectively. It's not even the first chapter, it's the introduction. The end of the introduction. I believe the more fundamental truth is that our problems lie not in our media stars, but in ourselves. So if you find yourself questioning something you're reading, see who else is reporting on it. See if anyone has verified it by doing their own original reporting, not copy-pasting what you just read with slight variations in verbiage. Yes, that happens often. There's wire services, and it's cheaper to copy-paste than to make something original. It's all about the money, right? I'm gonna leave a written version of these guidelines in the episode description for you. Please share them. I'm trying to help you know how to trust the news. And I'm telling you that most reporters see themselves as public servants, regardless of who they work for. But what I'm not saying is that you should trust them without question. Absolutely, you need to be on your guard. And understanding objectivity and bias and corporate influence and how outlets fund themselves is all a part of that. Outlets need to make money somehow, and whether they're using politics or catering to a certain more valuable audience or asking for donations, it does more or less influence their content, for sure. Those making efforts to improve media markets need to recognize that news emerges not from individuals seeking to improve the functioning of democracy. He's referring to journalists, those individuals exist, but practically speaking, economically speaking, that's not how news is created. News is created from readers seeking diversion, reporters forging careers, and owners searching for profits. And none of that answers the question which started this whole series, Why can't we handle coronavirus? What is it about the media that is causing people to be so polarized about it? How come some people believe it's a terrible issue and they're hiding in their homes? How come other people are refusing to wear masks and thinking it's an entire joke? What's going on? I want to talk about the biggest problem facing our journalism industry, the loss of local newspapers, 
That has had a gigantic effect on misinformation and polarization. I want to go over solutions. I want to help you continue to be better with your news consumption habits. And I want to really break down this question for you because I know the answer. But this episode's too long, so... <laughs> We're going to do another one. It's going to be shorter than this one. And if this was informative, if this blew your mind in one way or another or challenged you, um, the next one will too. All right. Thank you so much for listening. There's resources in the episode description. Please share this with someone if you feel like this information is valuable. Um, all right. Thanks, y'all. Have a good night. <laughs>